the Bain Free Radio Hour. On the podcast, a gentleman's game, bears beat their plowshares into swords, classic Bane titles and new ones in paperback form, and the conclusion of last week's interview with Susan Matthews. Welcome to the Bane Free Radio Hour podcast. It's an honor to have you along. I'm Bane editorial assistant Christopher Rocchio, still filling in for Tony Daniel, who, last we heard, was lost in the Amazon rainforest on a mission to find the legendary cities of gold. I'm right here. No, he's not. It's a lie. Today, we continue our interview with Susan R. Matthews discussing the release of Fleet Inquisitor, an omnibus volume containing the first three novels in her Under Jurisdiction series. For those of you interested in part one, please check out last week's podcast at Bane.com podcast. And, of course, we continue with our complete audiobook serialization of David Drake's The Sea Without a Shore. That's all coming up. Now, here's the news. Got a quartet of new paperbacks headed your way this month, three trades, and a mass market. And what a quartet! Those who know me will know the Warcosigan Saga is my personal favorite series from Bane, and this month sees the trade paperback re-release of Lois McMaster Bujold's 1991 Hugo Award-winning novel, The Vor Game. Miles Warcosigan faces enormous challenges in this sequel to The Warrior's Apprentice as he leads a mutiny against his military commander's criminal orders, rejoins his Dendarii mercenaries, and attempts to rescue Emperor Gregor after Beriar's royal scion has run off straight into trouble. But the war game isn't this month's only return to the world of Barriar and Miles Warcosigan. His mother, Cordelia, returns in Gentleman Joel and the Red Queen, available now in trade paperback for the first time. Three years after her famous husband's death, Cordelia Warcosigan, widowed vicereen of Sergiar, stands ready to spin her life in a new direction. Oliver Joel, Admiral Sergiar Fleet, finds himself caught up in her web of plans in ways he'd never imagined, bringing him to an unexpected crossroads in his career. Plans, wills, and expectations collide in this sparkling science fiction social comedy as the impact of galactic technology on the range of the possible changes all the old rules, and Miles learns that not only is the future not what he expects, neither is the past. Speaking of blasts from the past, we've also re-released Gordon R. Dixon's The Right to Arm Bears, a combo volume collecting the master's three novellas revolving around the Earthsign inhabitants of the planet Dilbia. Planet Dilbia is in a crucial location for both humans and their adversaries, the Hemnoids. Therefore, making friends with the Dilbians and establishing a human presence there is of the utmost importance. Which may be a problem, since the bear-like Dilbians stand some nine feet tall and have a high regard for physical prowess. And they're not impressed by human technology, either. A real man, or bear, doesn't need machines to do his work for him. But Dilbians are impressed by sharp thinking, and some have expressed a grudging admiration for the logical, and usually sneaky, mental maneuvers that the human shorties have used to get themselves out of desperate jams. Just maybe that old human craftiness will win over the Dilbians, to the human side. If not, we lose a nexus, and the Dilbians will learn just how unbearable hemnoids can be. And last but not least, join us in celebrating the career of David Drake with the mass-market release of Onward Drake. David Drake has left an indelible mark on the science fiction and fantasy genres. He is considered the grand master of military science fiction. Now, top authors in the field pay tribute to the man and his work in this all-new collection of stories and essays, including stories from Eric Flint, Gene Wolfe, Larry Correa, S.M. Sterling, Muir Lafferty, Mark L. Van Name, and many, many more. Onward Drake, edited by Mark L. Van Name, The Right to Bear Arms by Gordon R. Dixon, and both The War Game and Gentleman Joel and the Red Queen by Lois McMaster Bujold are now available from booksellers everywhere. This is part two of a two-part interview with Susan R. Matthews for Fleet Inquisitor. Those interested in part one should check out last week's podcast at bane.com slash podcast. But speaking of time and history, um, I always wonder with space opera titles, how far in the future are we exactly? Well, there's two answers to that question. Is There are two, so much in life. <laughs> and 
The very first answer to that question is, I don't know and I don't care. <laughs> and that... <laughs> That's a good answer. <laughs> it sounds a little bit... It sounds uh, more rude than I really intend it to sound, but the point behind I don't know and I don't care is that the question has got nothing to do with the story. It could be far future, it could be far past, it could be a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away, uh, and, and so <laughs> forth. So the first answer to the question about exactly where are we, has it been uncounted uh, thousands of years or whatever, is that if it doesn't have an immediate and important impact on the story that I want you to pay attention to, I don't really consider the question to be uh, pertinent or important. But on the other hand, it is a question. Anything that a reader wants to know is pertinent and important to me. And I have suspicions. And my suspicion is that it's far, 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 far in the future. Part of the reason I have that suspicion is because one of my characters, one of the one of the uh, guys that I love the most in this series, a security chief Stildine comes from what is essentially a barren and slum planet. Uh, it's not barren in the sense of a desert. It's barren in the sense that it has been completely covered with a really resource-poor environment in which or on which life is uh, nasty, brutish, and short. And the entire sector of space from which Security Chief Stillnine came uh, has been thoroughly trashed, not because of an invading force, but simply because it's been there for so long, everything is used up. So I suspect that Supercore Judiciary is where the jurisdiction started and where the original basic source population started out before they started to expand, and it has been so long. It has been so long that that question in jurisdiction itself uh, has probably gotten answer. There's probably cultural anthropologists or genetic anthropologists or something that would be able to tell you exactly what the lines of expansion and development are and about how long it's been. But it really doesn't make a whole lot of difference uh, to people under jurisdiction in the same way that I know that uh, my ethnicity is basically that of your average standard Northern European peasant, and the exact question of exactly when our original source population left the continent of Africa, if that's what you believe is happening, and I do, uh, the exact question of exactly how long ago that's been is not one that really concerns me personally a lot. <laughs> I hope that that answers the question. No, I follow, but are you saying that this uh, Security Chief Stildine's junkyard planet is Earth? That, that was the one thing I was a little confused about just now. Maybe. Maybe. Ooh. Maybe. Spooky. Maybe. <laughs> All right, well, I won't, I won't push then. Um, so let's, let's change... <laughs> Let's change topics. Um, there are a few aliens uh, that show up in the later books, but most of the, and I'm using air quotes here, aliens are just human ethnic groups that have begun to diverge from one another, which is why I, I guessed it must be a far future space opera series, just because evolution is slow. Why did you choose to handle your aliens in this way, using human offshoots? And what do you think that brings to the story? I would really hesitate to say pure laziness. <laughs> uh... <laughs> because really, uh, it's not actually pure laziness that, that uh, resulted in that suspicion. In, in much earlier iterations of jurisdiction novels, there were more aliens. But, you know, once you sit down and start thinking about more aliens, you start to, to wonder a couple of, a lot of... There are a lot of issues that immediately come to people's mind when they're reading a space opera and there are aliens. What kind, of uni what kind of adjustments to military uniform are required if one of your security troops is a very large bird or a larger or a smaller anything? If you had a whale in security, how, how would that possibly work? Lots of questions of, well, exactly how are they alien? How are they different? 
And if they're alien and different, how can they be breathing the same air? So you have to uh, make adjustments, <coughs> apparatus, and so on and so forth. The presence of such an alien in a space opera like my space opera uh, is intrinsically distracting. And I don't want anything in my story that distracts the reader from the story that I want her to pay attention to. Now, I want her to be focused on my protagonist, Andre Kosciusko, on the other characters that exist in the same story as Andre Kosciusko, in the issues that I think are really important and interesting to look at that are pertinent to the situation of Andre Kosciusko and how his character is developing and the decisions that he makes in reaction to the situations in which he finds himself. So I don't want the reader to stop in the middle of that and say, wait a minute, this character has got fennec ears. You know, those fennecs, the cute little fox-like things. Yeah. This character's got fennec ears. Well, you know, that means that this character must be this, that, and the other thing. And how did that character that reminds me of a fennec have gotten to be that much bigger than a fennec? Can you actually do that? Uh, with that kind of anatomy and so on and so forth. So part of the, so a large part of the reason, and as a matter of fact, probably the um, overriding reason that there are very few actually alien, non-hominid species under jurisdiction is because I wanted to maintain focus. No, that makes a lot of sense. Uh, I never quite thought about it that way. Uh, but they do. They do get in the way. They can be distracting. I don't love them any less, but I really want to make sure that do everything I can to keep the reader's attention focused where I want it. Well, yeah, aliens are fun, but people are more interesting as a general rule. Oh. <laughs> there, there is uh, an important alien under jurisdiction in the novels, I mean to say, and she's there partially because by the time I wrestled the entire storyline down to the place where I kind of sort of thought I wanted it, she had been part of the storyline for so long that I just, I just couldn't stand the idea of not having her. She is the intelligence officer on board of the jurisdiction fleet ship Ragnarok, and she's a bat. She's a very large bat for a bat, and there are a lot of things that I think are fun about her, but she's not in the story a very great deal because of that distraction issue. But to the extent that she is in the story, uh, it took me forever to do a scene from her actual point of view because it took me forever to try and get my head around what her point of view would actually look like. And the other thing that is interesting about that alien, in my opinion, is the fact that she explicitly comes from a sentient culture, an intelligent species, that has really only rather recently made contact with jurisdiction. And jurisdiction made contact with her people close to the point at which her people began to develop a culture and think of themselves as a people and so on and so forth. So with two, there, there are some of those fun alien things to play with, but not a lot, because I want your attention right where I want it. Right, on Andre and the, and the torture. See, I, I bring up aliens, though, because one of the through lines that runs through this series, at least the, the, the Fleet Inquisitor part, the first three books, uh, is this sort of ethnic struggle on the part of the New Rail, who are treated in turn somewhere between second-class citizens and genocide victims. Uh, we see them a bit in the first book with Robert St. Clair, uh, who is one, and then that sort of snowballs into this big conflict in the second part of Fleet Inquisitor. Are they just people who are slipping through the jurisdiction's fingers and that's why this is happening to them. Can you talk a bit about their situation, if you would? Sure enough. Well, you know, when you're talking about the New Rail, it, a lot of it depends on who is looking at them and who is talking about them. You've got New Rail and you've got Payana. And part of the point about New Rail and Payana is that they are genetically and even culturally almost, almost indistinguishable from each other. So you have a situation in which people have been living very close to one another. They have a history between each other, and the history has been which one of us is going to step on, your, step on the other one's neck. 
first thing I think about is um, something that I read when I was much younger about the uh, massacre at Glencoe of one Scottish clan's members by another Scottish clan's members, and the way in which that might have been said to have been engineered. Now, please understand that when I talk about this, I'm, I'm not taking sides in an historical argument about who was right, who was wrong, who should have known better, or any of those things. Of course. Fundamentally, however, you have the relatively new government of Dutch William, William III, uh, after the Glorious Revolution of 1688 and so forth, um, attempting to deal with political instability in Scotland. And the government, let's just call him Dutch William, let's just call the government Dutch William for now, uh, just for the sake of the argument. Uh, the government was not really was not really into or onto some of the long-standing uh, clan feud relationships, and one of those clans successfully engaged the relatively naive larger government in its own feud against another clan. This forms the model uh, to this forms the model for what I think happened to the new rail jurisdiction made contact with these world system which included new rail and piana who had been feuding with each other for centuries or octaves as we say under jurisdiction everything's base eight yeah, and, yeah mostly you see a little you see a couple of little hints from here to there about cultures that were not in base eight but never mind yeah this is a cool touch jurisdiction made <laughs> when the jurisdiction made first contact they made first contact with piana and being relatively unsophisticated about the internal cultural workings of this long-standing feud between two people who were functionally the same people the jurisdiction their power and their military force was successfully used by the piana against the new rail so the from the point from the from the piana point of view to the jurisdiction's forces those new rail you can't trust them uh, they're against you. They're resistors. Better go in and clean them out. And the jurisdiction, not being stupid, just not really having their hands on the complexity of the situation, says, well, you know, one of these ethnic groups has got to be the one that cooperates with um, with us, and this other ethnic group is not one that cooperates with us, so we know which ethnic group we want to bolster. And that is the way in which the Piana successfully engaged or recruited the newly appearing much larger, more powerful government against their ancestral enemies. If that hadn't happened, then they would have continued to go on happily for centuries they had before with new rail clans against new rail clans and all of the new rail against all of the Piana and so forth. But once the larger culture started to become aware of these conflicts in this particular world family and the abuses of power that had unquestionably taken place, then the new rail in the, in the larger public perception started to shift from these guys are terrorists and they will resist us by any means possible to these guys are on the wrong end of the stick and it's not their fault. That's that's really long-winded, Christopher, and I apologize. No, no, it was great. I do want to change gears, though. And talk about part three in Fleet Inquisitor, the novel Angel of Destruction, which um, which also changes things up quite a bit. We leave Kosciusko for this novel to follow Gerald Vogel, whose name I hope I'm saying correctly, who has a very interesting job. Can you tell us about Vogel and his place in the jurisdiction's bench? So let's talk about bench intelligence specialists. Uh, I really like them. Uh, and there's two and eventually a couple more bench intelligence specialists that are in these novels, and they form a really important element of the rule of law and the judicial order. Um, I remember hearing some time ago a friend was talking about the principle of one riot, one ranger. Now, she was talking about the Texas Rangers. And the idea was that at that time, uh, Texas Rangers, at certain period in Texan history, or Texian history, I should probably say, Texas Rangers were individuals that uh, were capable of going in and handling complex situations by themselves uh, due to, among other things, their own force of personality. You, you clearly need some kind of an 
operative who can get into a complicated situation under jurisdiction, sort things out, and derive a solution on the ground then and there without having to involve a lot of coordination and negotiation if it was an immediate emergency. So you've got bench intelligence specialists. These are people with what we call powers of extraordinary discretion, and that means that they have the lawful authority to do whatever they think needs to be done. They do not report to anybody in a specific sense. A bench intelligence specialist works closely with the topmost layers of jurisdiction, and the topmost layers are the judges presiding at one of nine judiciaries. Nine judiciaries, because remember, the whole thing started with the Supreme Court. And they take advice, and they give advice at the uppermost levels of judicial authority. But on the ground, they see what they think needs done, and they are lawfully authorized to deploy any resources they want to make it happen. They can pull in fleet resources if they want. They can change planetary governments if they want. The bench intelligence specialists are the people on the ground that come up with a solution that they believe is the one that will most effectively support the rule of law and the judicial order. Whether or not it's the right solution, when you absolutely positively have to have a solution, then a bench intelligence specialist can make that happen. People like Gerald Vogel uh, do carry a certain amount of their own baggage that fits them for their role. For example, there's some hints throughout that Gerald Vogel comes from um, a world family that was practically destroyed by a particularly ugly sort of civil war. And as a result, Gerald Vogel in particular has got an absolute horror of what civil war does to civilian populations. And so his particular bug is protecting civil, civil populations from political instability, even in circumstances in which he might personally believe that the wrong people are ending up on top. So individual bench specialists will have their individual outlooks on life. And Gerald has got an interesting character arc for development over the course of the series, in my opinion. But while we're talking about Angel of Destruction, I'd just like to note uh, that uh, although Andre and Stildine and some of those people have, you know, really brief cameo role in Angel of Destruction, the action of the novel continues to reverberate throughout the rest of the series. I think I can put it like that without uh, issuing any spoilers. Right, and to find out exactly how, they'll have to wait for Fleet Renegade here in a couple months. <laughs> but speaking of characters, there is another one I'd like to talk about because you've created someone here who I love to hate the way I haven't loved to hate a character in so long. I'm talking about uh, Murgao Noikaner, who is the other torturer student at the beginning of the first book. She drove me up the wall, uh, which... In an antagonist can be a really great thing, and I think it was wonderful. But she is very different from Andre, and part of the first book in Fleet Inquisitor is about their differences. Talk a bit maybe about what makes her so different from Andre, and about who she is generally. Oh, I detest that woman. Uh... <laughs> right there with you. <laughs> but at the same time, she does have her own validation, and she has her own overriding character flaw. So I, I, let's talk first. I'd like to talk first about who she is and where she comes from. She comes from horrible, a horrible environment. She uh, started life without any parents, without anybody to look out for her. She started life in very, very mean streets, and she has been a successful survivor all of her life. Since her earliest childhood, she was able to see her way through to survival and her personal advantage, no matter what it cost, in terms of effects on other people, whether they had helped her out or not. When she comes into the story, which is actually several years prior to uh, her introduction in An Exchange of Hostages, she had worked her way up from nothing to a position as a clerk of court at some little bitty out-of-the-way chambers and had managed to manipulate the situation to the extent that she brought herself to the attention of a visiting authority, 
a man who could give her access to the next level of personal survival, the man that could really offer her security at the at a, at a level that she could only have dreamed of. She figured out how to bring herself to the attention of First Secretary Verlaine, the First Secretary of a judiciary being the uh, senior official, the most influential official outside of, of the judge or the bench itself. And what Verlaine saw in Murgal from the beginning was that she is really an extraordinary survivor. And he really was kind of tickled and intrigued by the fact that she'd do anything, anything to get ahead. So when he embarked on this long-standing ambition of his to free the, the inquisitorial function from the control of fleet and to provide the, first, the judge at his judiciary with her very own inquisitor. Murgau was the obvious person to ask to make that sacrifice, and he did believe it was a sacrifice to be a test case, to go to Fleet Orientation Station Medical, the setting for the change of hostages, and to learn how to exercise the writ to inquire. And she went there, and she learned that, and you can see her operate, uh, watch her run. She is not stupid. She has a very high level of several kinds of intelligence, foremost being her survival instinct. In order to keep operating, strikes that. One aspect, however, of her own personal survival instinct is that she really sees the world to an extraordinary degree as me against everybody. Everybody is a threat. Everybody is a danger. She perceives that everybody would really like to kick her back into the gutter where she came from. As a result, her basic reaction is, I'm going to screw you before you have any possible chance to screw me. In my opinion, this is also where her fatal flaw is. Because because of her engagement with First Secretary Verlaine and the fact that Verlaine kind of likes her and admires her intelligence and so on and so forth, she is really in a really secure position. And she's in a position to see exactly what trust relationships between people look like and um, how much more efficient and powerful they can be when people relate to each other in a way that isn't screw you before you can screw me. She's seen it, and she's not stupid, but she has rejected it, and that is her fatal flaw. She would actually prefer to continue to see the world in terms of screw you and you and you and you and everybody else than to try and test out, experiment with another way of relating to her reality. Uh, Just one more thing. You know, I heard at one point... I can't remember where I heard it. Uh, one character in one uh, story or another talking to another character and saying, for a clever man, you're not very smart. And that's kind of the way it is with Murgal. She has uh, some she has some important kinds of intelligence, but the kind of intelligence that she does not have, that she has rejected the development of, uh, is social or human intelligence. And her decision has been she'd rather be safe and successful than try any other way of relating to the world. Maybe that was just repetitive. Maybe that was just repetitive, Christopher. No, I, that, that's what made her so frustrating. Is is you could see that she wasn't quite putting all of the pieces together because she wasn't extending any empathy to anyone around her, especially in that first book. She just didn't understand that Andre's brain was working very differently than hers. And it was frustrating. But also, you know, she wasn't really the hero, so it was, you know, it it was good to see her messing up because she's so unlikable. (laughs) Uh, It was cathartic. Now, of course, we have the next three books in the series coming up in the next combo volume, Fleet Renegade, and that's in February 2017. And we have the all-new seventh volume under jurisdiction, Blood Enemies, new from Bane in April of 2017. But beyond those, is there anything else you're working on right now? Uh, Any new projects? You know, when I'm writing a novel, frequently I can see a piece of this story or historical thing or a piece of that an incident in, in that literature that's totally removed from 
space opera under jurisdiction. For instance, uh, one of the non-jurisdiction novels that I wrote, I, I've always thought of as containing elements of the 1953 American attempt on K2 and, uh, oh, John Franklin, John Franklin's first expedition to the mouth of the Coppermine River. In other words, things have got nothing that have nothing to do with uh, the stories that came out, but that formed part of the impetus for the plot mechanics. Now, what I'm working on right now is a novella, and a significant part of that novella is actually The Cremation of Sam McGee by Robert Service. Okay. This novella addresses an early part of Andre's life in Fleet. It is after Exchange of Hostages. He has been on Scylla for several months when a medical emergency has resulted in him being dispatched to a manufacturing facility that is in the Arctic regions of A-World. And when he gets there, uh, things get complicated, as they so often do. I like this novella because I can take the opportunity to look at Andre in one of his first field exercises. There is an older inquisitor in this novella. As a matter of fact, uh, she's going home. She's retired. Her point of view, I'm really enjoying as that of an inquisitor at the end of her career, looking at an inquisitor at the very beginning of his career with the benefit of all of her experience. But apart from that, the elements in this novella that I'm really enjoying are minor elements of plot mechanics. It's Andre's first chance to watch the New Rail Crozer Hinge in action. It's the first time Andre's ever seen St. Clair pick something up and throw it with astonishing speed and accuracy and force. And in this case, it happens to be actually a snowball. <laughs> so there's some lighter stuff in, in this new novella you're saying. They have a, they have a snowball fight. This, it's, it's not a snowball fight. It's, oh. it's not a snowball fight, but, but Robert uh, gets to do his thing. It, it is, in terms of the grimness of the novella, of the action of the novella, it's quite different from Exchange of Hostages. It's quite different from Prisoner of Conscience. It's got nothing like the level of emotional intensity. It's just something that is a lot of fun, as well as, in, in terms of my approach to it, a lot of fun exploring some, some actual issues, Portrait of the Inquisitor as a young man, for instance, and at the same time being able to do some things like express uh, Jocelyn Curran's first experience of, the, of what would be the Northern Lights and the fact that he really does not like them, and he doesn't think the Northern Lights like him either. So there are some fun things in there. Uh, that's what I'm working on right now. My novellas tend to go long, and so technically speaking, it might end up at a different length, but I'm having, I'm having fun with it, and I, I hope that the people that read it will have fun with it also. Well, it sounds like it'll be fun, so... I think the actual title of the sign that is Proving Cruise. It may end up titled something different, but that's kind of the, the basic idea is Andre's first actual deployment in, uh, off the ship in a situation that may or may not involve him to do any torture, but certainly requires him to be uh, developing his, his inquisitorial skill set. Well, it sounds like it'll be great fun. I look forward to getting a look at that one, too. Um, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us today, Ms. Matthews. Thank you, Christopher. I've enjoyed it a very great deal. And once more, the book is Fleet Inquisitor by Susan R. Matthews. It's available now at booksellers everywhere in both print and ebook form, and you can grab your copy right now over at BainEbooks.com. Now we continue with our complete audiobook serialization of David Drake's The Sea Without a Shore. It seems Cinnabar's chief spymaster is a mother also, and her son is determined to search for treasure in the midst of a civil war. Who better to hold the boy's hand and to take the blows directed at him than Captain Daniel Leary, the Republic of Cinnabar Navy's troubleshooter, and his friend the cyberspy Adele Mundy. The only thing certain in the struggle for control of the mining planet Corsera is that the rival parties are more dangerous to their own allies than to their opponents. 
Daniel and Adele face kidnappers, pirates, and a death squad, even before they can get to the real business of ending the war on Corsera and bringing their charge home, maybe along with ancient alien treasure. Now here is the next entry of David Drake's The Sea Without a Shore. The Kaisha's crew waited aboard for orders as to how they would best help. Daniel slanted left and joined the older couple. I'm Daniel Leary, captain of the Kaisha, he said. We have your cargo safe. All but the single carbine with hail, he suddenly remembered. But I had to leave four of my shipmates in Brotherhood to prevent garrison troops from seizing the guns. I hope I can depend on your help to get my people back. They've been in touch with us and they're all safe, said Altgeld. You will have our help, though I hope you're not planning a head-on assault. Rennie gave her colleague a hard smile. Captain Leary's reputation isn't founded on head-on assaults, Robert, she said. She turned to Daniel, still smiling, and added, But I think we could manage even that if it were necessary. These guns mean that none of the parties will attack us without a great deal of thought. Sorry, said the man, offering his hand. I'm Brother Altgeld, and I used to be a ship's captain in the merchant service, which I gather is not your normal field, Captain Leary. I've been chosen community coordinator, and I tend to worry about everything which could go wrong, much of which has gone wrong in the past two years, I'm afraid. I'm Rennie, said the woman, also shaking hands. Sister Rennie at present, but Colonel Rennie of the Alliance forces in the not-too-distant past. She raised an eyebrow as she stepped back. I hope that's not a problem. It isn't, said Daniel. I was just commenting to my colleagues that your heavy weapons are very well placed for defense against a sudden assault. Thank you, Captain, Rennie said. She was short and roughly tubular in build, fit, short-haired, and probably deeper into middle age than she seemed at first glance. It's not the sort of thinking which I would prefer to be doing, but I haven't forgotten how. I suggest we all go into the office annex, Old Geld said. I wouldn't have cared to make a dirt landing the way you did, Captain Leary. Quite apart from the danger of it, the sod holds heat and re-radiates it in a fashion that I find quite unpleasant. I wouldn't mind getting something cooler under these thin-soled boots myself, Daniel said. Lead on, Brother Altgeld. The chapel was a circular building, an hourglass in section rather than a triangle, though the inverted upper cone was much smaller than the lower portion. Opaque struts provided strength with the spaces between them filled by colored glass. The windows looked muddy from outside, but the building's interior would be gay with a light behind them. I see only barracks, Daniel said, gesturing toward the community. He couldn't be sure how many long, two-story buildings there were, but he could see at least a dozen spaced farther back among the trees. Don't you have private dwellings? We actually prefer to live in groups, Rennie said though people are free to live apart if they want to. We have two single-family cottages, though you can't see them from here. Generally, newcomers start out in a cottage, but they always move to the group homes before long. Uh, brother, Cleveland said. They'd reached the nearest of three single-story buildings near the chapel. Altgeld was turning the door latch. Would you like me to help with the unloading? Everyone, Daniel included, turned to look back toward the Kaisha. The forklift was backing onto the PSP trackway with six cases of carbines on its prongs. Inside the hold, members of the ship's crew were readying the next sack for transfer. At the end of the track, among the trees where the ground was firmer, waited a sizable portion of the community grouped six or eight apiece around high-wheeled hand trucks. Daniel judged there were at least a hundred people and more than a dozen trucks. I think things are well taken care of, Brother Cleveland. Altgeld said. Come and join us. This bounty is entirely your doing. He looked at Daniel and added in embarrassment. And your and your companions doing, Captain, forgive me. Cleveland's parents provided the cargo, Daniel said, following Altgeld into what turned out to be a single office filling the building's interior. I'd say you were right the first time. How do you figure to store the guns? Hogg said as he walked in after the others. He wasn't carrying a shoulder weapon, but heaven only knew what was in his baggy pockets. A short-barreled pistol and his folding knife were as much a part of his routine wear as his boots were, 
and not infrequently he had produced a grenade when the need arose. We're dividing them among the dwellings, Rennie said. There is at least one person in each block who has firearms training, and usually several. We're not expecting a sudden raid by Pantellerian forces, and frankly, I don't believe the garrison has transport for such a thing, let alone the training. Nevertheless, we're prepared. Now that we have sufficient arms, Altgeld added. Everyone will be trained, even me. He smiled. I don't know how much Brother Cleveland has told you about our company, he said. But while we truly believe in the fellowship of all people, we cut our philosophy to the times. I've never seen the point in discussing religion, Daniel said. He shrugged. That aside, there's nothing in what you say that I'd take exception to. I rather thought that might be the case, said Altgeld. His smile made him look even more tired than he had when Daniel had first seen him out the Kaisha's hatchway. He settled himself onto a chair of wicker on a wooden frame and said, Sit down, please. Or stand, of course. He grinned at Hogg, looking like a pile of wrinkled clothing beside the door. And tell us, tell Rennie primarily what help you want. Daniel sat on the edge of a similar chair and leaned forward. I'm glad that Lady Mundy has been in contact with you, he said. My second officer informed me that she and her companions were taking refuge with the Navy, but I've been fully occupied with bringing the ship here. I was able to broach a possibility with her, however, and in a moment I hope you'll let me talk to her to confirm the plan from her end. He nodded toward the console at one end of the room, salvaged from a starship like many of those in service at a distance from major centers of civilization. When the starship's thrusters and high drives were burned out, and her hull was good for nothing but scrap metal, its astrogation computer was still more powerful than necessary for any ground-based requirements. That certainly included secure satellite communications, if the operator knew his business. The transformationists might be mystics, but they included mystics with very impressive real-world skill sets, as Sister Rennie proved. Yes, of course, Altgeld said, rising to his feet. Olga and I will leave you alone with the console. No, no, please sit down, Daniel said, smiling. I could contact Lady Mundy through the Kaisha's equipment if I wanted privacy. I'd like you to be present, since this is going to require your agreement and support. Altgeld settled back. Rennie hadn't moved. She had certainly realized that Daniel didn't need their console to speak with Adele. As I understand it, Daniel said, the problems within the independence movement started when Colonel Bourbon was taken prisoner, is that correct? Altgeld looked at Rennie, who shrugged. Yes, she said. The serious problems? Daniel nodded crisply. The present situation isn't sustainable, he said. Before long, the other three factions will begin open warfare within Brotherhood. The fighting may draw you in also, but whether or not that happens, the Pantellerians will seize the planet. Ordinary people will support Pantelleria because it will be the only body which can impose law and order, which is what most people want more than they want ideology. Rennie looked at the frowning Altgeld and said, Independence is an ideology, Robert. Turning to Daniel, she said, I agree with your assessment, Captain. I suspect that the leaders of the regiment and the Navy agree also, Daniel said. He had served under officers much less quick on the uptake than Rennie was showing herself. I've asked Adele, Lady Mundy, that is, to propose to the other factions a meeting of all parties here. He gestured with his right hand toward the wall behind him and the community beyond. In Pearl Valley, because even the garrison leaders will trust your community to keep your collective word, which they wouldn't the other parties in the coalition. I wouldn't trust the other parties, said Altgeld, and in former days I wouldn't have trusted myself, he shrugged. Merchant service is a hard school, he said. But now, yes. And we have enough strength here to enforce a truce, Rennie said, nodding. Whereas for us to assault Brotherhood successfully would be more problematic. Rennie grinned. Her expression reminded Daniel of Tovera's on occasion. At this meeting, Daniel said, I'm going to propose that my crew and I travel to Ischia and there arrange the release of the imprisoned envoys at my own expense. Is that possible? said Altgood. Will the factions in Brotherhood agree? said Rennie simultaneously, leaning forward. I believe it's possible, yes, 
Daniel said, feeling himself relax. The questions were practical ones. They meant that the transformationists were already in agreement. And as for the other factions, he turned his hands palms up before him. I won't know for sure until I speak to Lady Mundy again, but she said that Captain Simone is on board, and that Administrator Tibbs, though less enthusiastic, has given her tentative approval. Mundy won't contact Colonel Murciello until I tell her matters are arranged at this end, but neither she nor I think Murciello will be able to object. His own troops, at least some of them, would turn on him if he blocked the rescue of Colonel Bourbon. Alkeld stood. Make your call, Captain, he said. Matters are arranged at this end. And I, said Sister Rennie, also rising, will make arrangements to receive our visitors in mutual safety and convenience. She looks like Tovera again, Daniel thought, as he walked to the console. Chapter 15 Pearl Valley on Corsera Adele could have ridden in the truck's cab between Captain Simona and his Navy driver, but she had decided that the crossbench in the box was probably a better choice. The canvas sides were rolled up to the roof, so the visibility was just as good in every direction except forward, and it would be easier to get out if they were ambushed. Spray, which the four lift fans kicked up from the Cephasis River, clung like a heavy mist to those in back, but she was used to that sort of thing. The air-cushioned truck was large enough to hold a platoon, but there were only four Navy personnel in the back with Adele and the other three Cinnabar nationals, the transformationists, which in this case meant Brother Altgeld relaying Daniel's decision, had directed the other three factions to come with only six people each. Simona was holding rigidly to the limit. He probably felt that he couldn't bring enough gunmen with him to make a real difference if everything went wrong, so he was gaining goodwill by obeying the rules. In front of Adele, he had ordered the Fretch's sailing master, the destroyer's highest-ranking space officer with Simona gone and his lieutenant hostage on Ischia, to come in at low level in an emergency. After the Pantellarian ship's attack at Hablinger, that was a credible threat. Adele wasn't expecting an ambush. Tovera, to her left on the bench, and Hale on her right to the other side of Vesey, seemed to feel otherwise. Hale might not have been so nervous on her own, but Tovera's alertness seemed to have infected her. Adele's lips quirked. Tovera was always alert and always expected an attack. But Tovera was a sociopath and not really human. An ordinary human being who acted the way she did would be insane. Hale would have to learn that. Or go insane, of course. There were always options. The truck slowed, then turned hard left with the S-Bend skidding, which was the inevitable province of air-cushioned vehicles. Vessi half rose and bent over Hale to look forward, clinging to one of the hoops which supported the roof and sides. We're on the creek now, she called over the fan howl. The settlement should be less than a mile. Vessi jerked back and shouted, Whoa! She's been shot. Adele brought the pistol out of her pocket without thinking of what she was doing. The small weapon wouldn't be effective at any distance, but it was what she had. Branches banged against the cab and then along the hoops as the truck lurched onward. They would have slapped Vessie in the face, possibly blinding her if she hadn't dodged quickly. The truck was pushing through foliage on both sides now, and repeatedly the skirts bumped over rocks above the surface of the stream. There was less spray, but leaves and occasionally living creatures were scraped into the truck box. A bronze-colored creature, no longer than an index finger, flopped from a branch and immediately struck at the nearest object, Tovera's left boot. Hale raised her carbine to use the butt as a pestle. I'll get it, she said. No, said Tovera, bending over. Hale hesitated. Vessie put her hand over Hale's, though her eyes were fixed on the creature. Adele thought it had tiny legs around the margin of its body, but she might have been seeing a flap of translucent skin. It was almost certainly poisonous. It'll bite you, Hale said, amazed that her companions didn't appear to see the obvious. Tovera's hand moved. Her fingers pinched the creature just behind the head. With the same motion, she flipped it over the side of the vehicle. It was still writhing and apparently unharmed. There was a tiny splotch of yellow where the creature had been attached to the gray boot. Tovera looked at Hale and said, thank you. 
but I felt that professional courtesy was called for. Vessie chortled. Adele smiled. Hale, nonplussed, lowered her carbine. Six kept the ship on the surface all the way up the river, Vessie said, looking sideways but seated firmly in the center of the bench with Adele. It's a pity he lifted here instead of clearing it for us. There might have been people here in the creek that he couldn't have seen until he was on them, Adele said, following Vessie's eyes. And the foliage was alive and full of lesser life. Daniel was certainly ruthless enough to let his thrusters sear a lethal path across a forest, but it was the sort of thing he preferred to avoid. This far up the river, the Kaisha was beyond the slant range of anti-ship missiles from Brotherhood. There wasn't a great deal that Adele cared about, certainly not other living things, with the exception of a few human beings who had taken her into their friendship and protection. She appreciated people who did care, though. People should choose to behave well to their surroundings, human or otherwise. Surely Captain Leary didn't come this far in surface effect, Hale said. Really, I don't think that would be possible. Flying 50 miles in the atmosphere would be an amazing job in a tramp freighter, even at 500 feet or so. Tovera leaned forward. It's possible, she said. From what I've seen, Lieutenant Vesey could do it. Not so, Lieutenant? Vesey looked embarrassed. Not so well as six, certainly, she said. But if I were forced to try, I believed I would have managed the business, yes. She gestured toward the open back of the truck to change the subject from herself. As for what Six did, though, there's no question, Hale, she said. The mud bar at the mouth of this creek had been baked to shale. You could see it broken into plates after we'd driven over it. Tovera grinned, still looking at Hale. Stay with Vessie, she said. There's no end of things you can learn, if you survive. Tovera returned to surveying the forest they were bucking through. Adele thought about the interaction she had just witnessed. Vessie was quiet and easily overlooked. Hale, a much more forceful officer, had probably been taking her as a cipher to be ignored, or even elbowed aside despite her rank. Thanks to Tovera, that wouldn't happen now. An ordinary human being, Corey, for example, wouldn't have thought of correcting Hale's mistake until it had flashed up as an open problem. I wonder if a smart sociopath who works at it isn't better at being human than most human beings are. Another aspect of the business occurred to Adele, though she kept the frown of doubt from reaching her face. Tovera worked at displaying herself as an intelligent, caring member of Adele's circle. The intelligence was real because she had attached herself to Adele. Tovera's natural behavior was more similar to that of a weasel than to that of the caring pedagogue she had just mimicked. Adele let herself smile broadly enough that a stranger would have recognized the expression. I found a reason for living. To encourage Tovera to be a kinder, gentler person when kind, gentle behavior is appropriate. The universe being what it was, the natural Tovera had many opportunities to display herself, or itself, nonetheless. Captain Simona slid open the window between the cab and the truck box. I see it ahead, he called. A woman in coveralls stood by the riverbank. She waggled one of her orange paddles in the air, then pointed both paddles in parallel past herself. That's the Kaisha, Hale said, leaning out to look forward. Adele could see a starship through the windshield, but she couldn't have sworn that it was the Kaisha. In any case, that was Daniel waving from the base of the ship's ramp. The truck slowed, hopped, and then stopped thirty feet from the Kaisha. The Navy personnel... At least two of the four were simply gunmen, not spacers, used the skirt for a step as they exited by the back of the truck. They jogged around on both sides to flank Captain Simona as he got out of the cab. Vessie hopped to the ground and reached upward to take Adele's hand and brace her as she followed. Hale watched with a slight frown. She hadn't been a member of the crew for long enough to automatically offer the mistress help with any physical test. Vessie smiled at Adele and said, it's good to be back. Yes, said Adele, walking toward Daniel. He had now been joined by a pair of middle-aged strangers. She heard Hale saying, I didn't realize you'd been here before, Lieutenant. Adele smiled. It must be difficult for an outsider like Hale to work into an existing family, but she was trying. 
Hogg stood by the ramp with his hands in his pockets, looking toward the ground car which was pulling into the clearing. Following it was a six-wheeled truck with a pintle-mounted automatic weapon. Hogg's stocked impeller leaned against the outrigger beside him. It threatened no one and was easy to overlook, unless something unpleasant started to happen. The ground car settled as the driver released the pressure in the hydraulic suspension, which had given it an extra 30 centimeters of clearance. Administrator Tibbs got out. Brother Graves had said that the road from Brotherhood to the Transformationist settlement was circuitous and occasionally rough. The regiment didn't have a full-sized air cushion vehicle, so their envoys to the conference had decided to travel this way instead of coming upriver in a pair of air cushion jeeps. Lady Mundy, said Daniel, allow me to present you to Coordinator Altgeld and the community's military advisor, Sister Rennie. Lady Mundy, said Rennie, offering her hand after Adele had shaken with the coordinator. I'd appreciate a moment to chat with you and your servant before the general conference gets underway, if that's agreeable to you, Captain Leary. Lady Mundy doesn't need my approval to speak with anyone she pleases, said Daniel, his tone minusculely guarded. Adele understood Daniel's concern. The unexpected is rarely a spacer's friend, or a spy's come to that. Tovera stepped between Adele and Rennie. Where were you planning to take us? She said harshly to the transformationist. I thought we'd step to the edge of the field there, Rennie said in a mild tone. She nodded to the belt of waist-high grass between the mowed field and the natural forest. That way we remain in sight of everyone, but we're out of the line of fire of the impeller in the hummock we'll be standing next to. Tovera barked a laugh. Adele had heard her servant laugh before, but the timbre of this sound was like nothing in the past. Sure, Tovera said, let's get out of the way. Adele followed Rennie and Tovera. When she got close enough, she saw that what she'd taken for a natural swell in the ground was actually covered with chameleon fabric which mimicked the surrounding grass. She didn't doubt that there was an automatic impeller concealed within. Rennie nodded minusculely toward the hillock. The man there is a former land forces sergeant, she said, and the best gunner I've ever met. I can't imagine why the Pantelarians would want to attack us, but I'm not privy to their internal counsels. Colonel Murciello and his cronies don't need a reason to attack someone, just an opportunity. I want them to regret it if they decide they have an opportunity here. Rennie breathed deeply. Lady Mundy, she said. I've told my colleagues, and your colleagues after the Kaisha landed, that I was an Alliance colonel in my life before I joined the community here. This is true. But I think I should add to you. Because she'll learn it herself, Tovera said. Of course Lady Mundy would learn it. And would learn even if you didn't know already, mistress, Rennie said, her voice suddenly hard. Her eyes locked with Tovera's for a moment, then flicked back to Adele. That I was not a colonel in the army of the Alliance, but rather in the Fifth Bureau. I'll keep that in mind, said Adele. I was a librarian before I joined the RCN, and those habits of thought still color my perceptions. Rennie nodded. Yes, they do, she said. In a voice that might have been wistful, she said, I was sent to Pearl Valley 15 years ago, investigating. I pretended to be a convert, of course. To my surprise, I found real kinship, a wonderful thing. Nobody cared what I had been or why I had come here, even after I confessed. It's an amazing feeling. She smiled, her eyes on the past. It transformed me, she said. She laughed to make a joke out of what she had said, if anyone chose to believe that it was a joke. It wasn't a joke, of course. Adele said, I understand what it means to become a member of a family after a lifetime of being alone. The thrum of powerful fans sounded approaching from the north. That will be the garrison's two armored personnel carriers, Rennie said, if they've been able to get both of them airborne, that is. Let's head for the chapel. Tovera said, let's not get too close to the garrison has landed, though. Um, said Adele, looking from Tovera to Rennie. There are meter-high steel spikes in the bushes near the chapel, Rennie said. 
We've asked our visitors to stay at least 50 meters out, so it shouldn't matter. But if someone did try to land an air car too close to the building, well, you can't tell how far a fan blade will fly. They walked toward the chapel as two APCs came in low over the treetops, one of them laboring. Adele joined the laughter as the garrison vehicles suddenly jerked away as they started to land beside the chapel's porch. That was another part of David Drake's The Sea Without a Shore. And that's it for the podcast. Thanks to Audible.com and to podcast theme composer Ruth Judkowitz. And every prisoner in every corner of known space under jurisdiction is set free, staggering out under open, starlit skies to howl litanies of thanks and praise to the highest heavens for Susan R. Matthews, the author of Fleet Inquisitor. Please join us next time here at the hammering heart of science fiction and fantasy, and keep reaching for the stars. <laughs>